0: Good
1: morning, friends. Hi.
0: Good afternoon, good morning, good evening from wherever you're joining, welcome and happy Friday. Thank you for coming to this Penn GSE live webinar. The Penn GSE live series is hosted by the Penn GSE Center for Professional Learning. The Center for Professional Learning designs and delivers professional learning opportunities that support educators, leaders, and policymakers, entrepreneurs, and other professionals to deepen their knowledge build their networks and grow their careers. Today's webinar will be hosted by Taylor Hausberg. Thank you so much, Taylor.
1: Thank you, Chanel. And hello, everyone. Welcome to our first discussion in the Penn GSE live webinar series. My name is Taylor Hausberg and I work with the Center for Professional Learning at Penn GSE. Thank you all so much for joining us today. We are so excited to have Dr. Karen Weaver here to discuss the question, what will college athletics look like in 2021? Dr. Weaver is an adjunct assistant professor in the higher education division at Penn GSE. As a college athlete, she was an all American and one of the first women ever to earn an athletic scholarship under Title IX. She is a former Division I and Division Three Head Coach and Athletics Administrator, and in 1986 was named USA Today Coach of the Year. Dr. Weaver is an expert on college sports as they intersect with higher education management, media, and policy. He is a regular contributor to Forbes and an executive producer and host of the podcast Trustees and Presidents. Karen, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us today.
0: Thanks, Taylor. Glad to be with you.
1: In the next half hour, I'll begin by asking Dr. Weaver a few questions about college sports. If you, our audience, have any questions that come up as we're talking, please type them in the Q&A. We'll get to a few of your questions in the last 10 minutes or so. Also, if you have any tech issues, please type those in the Q&A or chat as well. So Karen. There is so much happening in the world of college sports right now. So perhaps we can start by having you give us a lay of the land. What's the status of college sports? And what are some of the major decision points that higher ed leaders have been wrestling with in the last six months or so?
0: Well, the status of college sports is disruption. Disruption, as as in everything else that we've been dealing with in the last seven or eight months with COVID-19, with the pandemic, with the economic shifts that we've faced and college athletics is not immune to that. So senior leaders in higher education, people who care about the direction of higher education are now more tuned in, I think, to athletics because of the costs involved, rather than understanding the impact that it will have inside of our communities. Let me give you an example. For years, we've looked at athletics as a great builder of alumni connections, school spirit, uh, a great way to brand and market your university, all those things. And for many reasons, those are still true, but athletics brings complicated problems to the table that today are really being front and center in the middle of the pandemic. One, what's the right size number of sports to offer? We've seen over 300 sports programs dropped in the last nine months because of the pandemic, because of costs and other reasons. How much is too much to pay our coaches, our support staff, et cetera? How big should our departments be? <clears throat> what conferences get to do what? We have certain conferences that seem to have an unlimited ability to make their own decisions while the NCAA controls the direction of championships for other conferences. And so, and we've also got the issues of what's, what's safe for our athletes to do in COVID-19 in terms of participation. Also, in terms of concussions and other athlete health issues, how effectively do we deal with those? And finally, and not least, the issues around racial justice and creating athletes' voices in this situation.
1: That is a lot going on. (laughs) And I'm curious, so you spoke about some of the potential benefits about moving forward with opening sports programs and, you know, of course, as usual, but at the same time, there are so many risks, right, to, pate- to, to physical health, to athletes' mental health as well, which you've written about, and higher ed leaders are being asked to decide, like, essentially which risks are worth taking, and so I'm wondering how are you seeing leaders navigating what are essentially, like, really ethical quandaries?
0: I think one of the things that is unique to athletics is it's not an independent decision making situation by campus. You are so dependent upon what your conference does because you need competitors. You need people to be able to play your games against somebody. So collectively, how do presidents make decisions in a conference that meets the needs of all participants? And then what happens when you all can't get on the same page? And there have been conferences this fall where some institutions have said, well, I'm not, I don't like the decision my colleagues made, so we're gonna go off and do our own thing and schedule an independent schedule. There's all kinds of messages being sent when schools make decisions that are different from their regular student population, than what your athletes do. Whether the athletes are still on campus and the students have gone home, or whether you're allowing some sports to participate and you've postponed other sports. There's all kinds of ethical and moral dilemmas that are front and center right now for all of higher education, not just athletic administrators.
1: Right. Do you see any bright spots in terms of either colleges or leaders who you see really as, as exemplars in, in going about this really compli- complex decision-making process.
0: Well, I think we've been fortunate in that testing and tracing and testing results uh, coming back quickly has accelerated dramatically in the last three months. But those tests are still hard to get. And the frequency with how often you need to be tested and how quickly their response is still limited to the people who can afford them. So there's, a, there's an economic disparity there across all of college athletics, whether you be in community college or in an FBS division one program. So that has to be looked at because that has not allowed for a, a level playing field. But also w- one thing I'm paying very closely to right now is that we have to accept that this generation that's coming up expects to have a voice, expects to have the opportunity to give their say and have their say be valued, not just nodded at, and then you moved on to the next thing. That is not how this generation is going to work. And that was particularly acute this summer when you had um, different groups saying, look, if we don't know what the health and safety protections are for our programs, then why should we participate? If we have to put all of our trust on you, how do we know that we're really being taken care of? That's a fundamental basis for this issue of economic and racial justice, but that's only the base, that's only the beginning.
1: Right. And that's something that surprised me as I was reading and learning about college sports, which is there's not one single student voice or athlete voice in this conversation, right? Even athletes are kind of divided and figuring out what to do. There's the hashtag we are united group, which wants forward, or sorry, uh, step back, right, from from playing this season. And then there's the hashtag we want to play movement, which wants to move forward. So how are college leaders making sense of those very different opinions?
0: Well, it's just like colleges. Every single institution thinks of itself as unique. And so do athletes. They come to the table, not with a monolithic viewpoint, but with a very common set of understandings of what they want their experience to be. And I would also say that many times <clears throat> coaches have to be careful not to overpromise and underdeliver what they can do for their athletes. Sometimes, some things are within their control and some things are not within their control. And, the, and some of this revolves around the revenues that sports generate and how much the institution can or will support the athletic, the athletic department's desires to move forward. The cost for tests is a great example. I think when schools decided to move forward with playing football, they decided they were willing to absorb the costs for that, but not for the other sports. That was just a bridge too far. So you're creating a separation even amongst Division I programs for who you're going to test now and who you're going to test later.
1: I'm curious, like, what what sort of impact does that have on a school community when some athletes are getting tests quickly and easily, some athletes aren't? I imagine non-athletes might also have differential access to testing. So what ripple effects are you seeing in these school communities?
0: Well, it certainly sets up a, a prioritization of who's more important. It sends a message clearly to the athletes and coaches in other sports that we don't matter as much as they do. And if so, then what are we saying about those folks that we need them on the field for money uh, generation from our television contracts, we need them for our school spirit, we need them for all of these reasons. What then are we saying about the additional responsibility that those athletes hold in our entire athletics department ecosystem?
1: Right. I'm, I'm curious too about, um, you know, when we think about ripple effects, how have local communities um, been involved in, or are they involved in these decisions, right? Like I was, uh, I'm thinking about UNC Chapel Hill, which has decided it wants to include uh, spectators at Keenan Stadium, um, but the Chapel Hill community is, uh, you know, not, not divorced from that, right? Chapel Hill is situated, all of these campuses are situated in, com- in larger communities. So how are they involved in the conversation or not?
0: Well, hopefully, higher ed leaders are active, having active conversations, not only with the local businesses that populate the nearby you know, town gown relationships, but also with their community health partners. Mm-hmm. Because as we've seen as students have come back to campus, there's been a massive spike in those areas with off-campus parties, fraternities, sororities, and other events that do impact the community. Mm-hmm. So how do you help the community? How, how do you help yourselves become good partners in the community? Realizing the impact that you're having on resources on testing, maybe even on hospitalizations, maybe not for your yourselves, your students, but maybe for the other people that they come in contact with right, <clears throat>
1: right. Um So I've also
0: noticed that um,
1: many of the bigger schools, right? Like, so the Big Ten has decided to uh, go forth with with its football program. Um, But at the same time, we're seeing many of the smaller schools um, deciding to stay closed and stay put for now. So how do you make sense of this different approach between some larger schools and smaller schools? Or is that even a fair distinction to make?
0: Well, I think it's a distinction between what we call the power five conferences or the autonomous five, which can set their own rules and have their own championship outside of the NCAA. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the schools, when you think of schools like James Madison, North Dakota State, uh, Villanova here in Philadelphia, Penn to some degree, who who are in different kinds of division one conferences. But their championships are sponsored by the NCAA. And the NCAA made a decision that they weren't gonna host any fall championships in their activities. They were gonna postpone them to the spring. So, but the autonomous five or the power five plays in the college football playoff. That is as organization is structured by them, run by them and all the revenues come back to them. So they decided economically it wasn't worth it for them to to lose out on all those potential television revenues. And we're talking budgets of, I don't know, 150 million, $200 million a year for some of these schools, of which 70 to 75% of their revenues comes from television. So if those monies don't come in, the domino effect for the rest of the athletic department is severe. And you're already starting to see layoffs, furloughs and people just being told we're not funding your position anymore at all in in higher education across the board. And and yes, there've been layoffs and furloughs on the academic side, on the staffing side, but I don't know how many people in higher ed are truly aware of how many people have been laid off in athletics. And we've even seen some higher education schools, not in the Power Five, but just, just, just continue their athletics programs completely. That's a loss, that's a loss for those students. That's a loss for the the promise that was made to them when they enrolled in the institution and nothing is forever, I understand that. But rightfully so, some of these programs of of Olympic sports and non-revenue sports whose programs are being diminished or cut back have the right to ask, well, why is so much being spent on this? Why is so much being spent on football? Why is so much being spent on coaching salaries? Why are you spending so much money on consultants to help us with our, our program's culture or to help us hire an AD or a, what, why can't that money come back to us? Those are all really good questions in a time when dollars are short.
1: I have a question here from Sean Plaskett, uh, who says, you briefly touched on the dissonance people feel with the idea of some campuses being shut down to students, but moving forward with athletic programs involving their student athletes. What's your personal take on the message that this sends in terms of how student athletes are used or valued? And what are your thoughts on on the implications regarding the age-old debate on compensation for college athletes?
0: Uh, Sean, that's a great question. So I think we've really kind of crossed a Rubicon when we decided to keep football players on campus and sent everybody else home. And Taylor, you mentioned UNC Chapel Hill. they were one of the earliest ones to, to make that decision. They kept just football players and I think folks who had trouble with internet connections at home on campus. And then my understanding is they started to move some of those football players into one or two residence hall so they could have everybody be together. Well, that flies directly in the face of what the NCAA has constantly said, which is we want our athletes to be part of the campus population. We want them to be students as far as being mixed in with the student body. And if anything, in the last few years, particularly in football and men's basketball, we've isolated those students more and more by creating athlete villages, exclusive only places where The football team can go or the basketball team can go and the and the rest of the student body has absolutely no access to these really, really nice facilities. So I think we we're starting to go in a a direction that does not support the idea that students athletes are truly part of the student population. I think we've sent a lot of messages that way. Mm -hmm. And Sean, your other part of your question about athletes getting paid. um, I think this is a very complex issue, but at the very least the right thing is to allow them to have the same rights that the regular student population has with regards to the right of publicity. And that's what names, images, and likenesses is. And letting those athletes take advantage of leveraging that opportunity. Because remember, so many of the athletes are on partial scholarships or on walk-ons. they are walk-ons. So therefore, they may come out of this experience, experience with student debt. They should have the right to be able to minimize that debt as much as they possibly can. And one great tool is their ability as an athlete.
1: So, so to your point about athletes uh, having a voice, we've seen a surge of Black athlete activism, right, as many athletes are circumventing these kind of paternal, sometimes paternalistic rules that universities and athletic departments place around how they can express themselves, how they can engage with the media. And I'm curious, how are these efforts changing the way that higher ed leaders think about the relationship or the power dynamic between schools and athletes? And it does Does this signal perhaps a a permanent shift in these power dynamics or do you think this is only temporary?
0: I think it's too soon to tell. I think we have a real opportunity right now to embrace the athlete's voice. And just this week, for example, the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee was mandated by Congress to bring more athletes to the table because of all of the challenges they've had in ignoring the athletes' concerns. Oftentimes, the NCAA thinks of itself as having a similar model, and I think we really need to move at a point where athletes are much more heavily involved in the decision making, and they're not just told what to do and what not to do, but ask collectively, how can we make this the best experience for you, not just tell you what we think is best for you.
1: Um, Warren asks the question that I think is very relevant to, to what we're talking about. He says Professional athletes made waves this year by refusing to play in protest. College athletes don't often have the financial flexibility and risk tolerance to take these steps. Who is responsible for empowering these student athletes to use their platform? And how can they be assured that they aren't risking their financial futures?
0: yeah that's a really great question and that's always been like kind of the anvil hanging over their head in this situation that they feel they're going to lose something but in 2015 the university of missouri was facing all of the the, um, racial upheaval in ferguson and and the football team uh took a stand along with other african-american students on campus saying we're not going to tolerate the way we feel and the way we are treated on this predominantly white campus so they stood in alliance the team did and even the coach did with the the african-american students on campus and said we simply will not practice or compete until these issues are addressed their voice was powerful and it's really important to remember that when they collectively decide to do something they are now because of social media because of all the different variations of media that we have today they are going to have the opportunity to have that amplified much faster and much quicker than any other time. So as higher educators, we can either fight this or we can embrace it. And I'm of the school of thought that we ought to embrace it because it's better for everybody.
1: Yes, Well said. Um, Jessica Small Arts asks, um, with many universities already struggling to satisfy Title IX equity, how do the 300 plus programs cut so far further widen this gap? Will we see even more universities falling out of compliance and unable to correct, especially if they have
0: a football program? Well, Jessica, you, you, that's a great question. I, and I know you've, you've studied this, so I, I know what you're, you're asking me. But the problem is, is there's no economic equivalent or numbered equivalent on the women's sports side like there is for football. There's just no other women's roster that has 85 to 125 women on it. So they're constantly piecemealing numbers of rosters together to get up to that 85 to 125. So inevitably in, in higher education, when you have a football program, Almost universally, almost, you are out of compliance with Title IX just because you can't possibly offer enough women's sports and find competitive opportunities for them that offset the number of athletes that play football. The, sport, the schools that don't have football uh, oftentimes do a very good job of being in compliance with Title IX because simply the numbers match up. So I think the issue really is what do we do around football? Now the answer is not, well, let's, let's exclude football because courts have ruled seven different times that we can't do that. So let's just give that up. So we have to find other ways to make equitable experiences for women athletes that translate to the 125 opportunities that we're providing for men. That's all, there's also a problem with that for the other men's sports because they end up getting dropped to offset the number of bodies on the football team. So the question higher educators might ask is, do we really need 125 folks on a football team? Maybe we only need 100, and those 25 opportunities can go somewhere else. But I think having more um, academic understanding of, of these decisions that have just been made over the years, and they've sort of become the tradition, Maybe it's time to look at some of those traditions and say, let's rethink this.
1: Um, Stephen Barber asks, do you anticipate this moment in college athletics as an opportunity for college presidents and academic administrators to exercise greater control over their athletic departments? The uncertainty over the last few months has laid bare many of the flaws in the current model and seem ripe for a shift in the power dynamics of this area. So, to your point about imagining different possibilities and different relationships, um, what?" What does that look like in this context?
0: I think that's such a great question. Thank you for asking that. I think this is the pivotal moment to bring higher education and college athletics out of their parallel silos and together in the same place. For too many decades, the two, two entities have operated independently of each other. And in fact, as some institutions, they are wholly owned subsidiaries outside. They're treated as auxiliary units that only need to hit their revenue loss goals. Athletics is so much more than that. And we can see in this situation, and moving forward post pandemic with all of the geographic and enrollment challenges that higher education is going to face as a whole, athletics needs to be a partner in that, which means that higher educators need to have a better understanding of how athletics works. And that's something that I'm really looking forward to do through the Center for Professional Learning.
1: I want to double click on that idea um, about what higher ed leaders might need to do differently or uh, moving forward. Um, And I'm curious what advice would you give, and this is actually a question Ian Diaz asks as well, what advice would you give to faculty and staff as they support student athletes during this uncertain and unprecedented time?
0: I think it's very difficult to go off and find information on your own to know what questions to ask because while there are a ton of people who love to write about sports and opine about sports, you, you, as somebody who wants to become a college president or wants to become a senior leader, there's gotta be a place where all of that clutter is, is, de, is decluttered and you get a chance to see through the mist and see exactly what are the questions I should be asking on behalf of my institution. And then what are some of the options that I might consider for my institution? And at this point, I don't really see that there's a place for that. And having discussions around athletics, its mission, its values, its purpose on our campus is an important discussion to have. It's not just because, well, we've always done it that way. We know that now in higher education, we're we're going to have to reinvent ourselves after this pandemic, simply the economics are changing, the, the demographic shift is changing, and even how people consume content, either educationally or sports related, is changing. So it's wise for us to to really look at it from our institutional perspective and say, what matters to us? Do we align our values and our our priorities with our mission? And do we include athletics in that discussion?
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And I'm curious, I mean, I imagine nobody was expecting a pandemic. Nobody had had planned for this particular situation. But when it comes to uh, planning for the future, um, what sorts of, what, what does that look like? What does, how do we, how do we play, how do higher ed leaders begin to plan differently knowing now that, uh, you know, disruptions, like you said, are, are very possible in this realm? Yeah.
0: Well, we're certainly in a situation where the the economics aren't going to be the same going forward. The state legislature money is it's just not there for public institutions. Mm-hmm. Parents are very sensitive about student debt, student outcomes. So we're going to have to find ways to to link the athletic experience back to what we're promising as a deliverable for being a graduate. And it's more than just having leadership workshops. It's more about how do we integrate them into the workforce and not take up so much of their time that they don't have time to pursue some of these career focused opportunities. There was a great study that just came out from the National Association of College and Employers at college, career centers and, and employers and it said that the ki- the students who come out with paid internships out of college are more likely to be hired by a full-time employer than those who come out with unpaid or no paid I- internship at all. So the opportunities now to get hired include having your resume scanned, looking for paid internships. This is something that I don't know that higher education has even thought about for college athletes. And yet our employers are out there saying, this is what we value. So it can't just be anymore that we're gonna get you a degree because we know a degree is sort of like the the benchmark, but then how do we get a job? How do we get into the career path that we wanna get into? And higher education has to be more aware that Employers are valuing these paid internships.
1: Yes, and um, I know we're we're coming close to our time, so I have I have one last question for you. But um, to your point about the the future of these college athletes, so I know that um, so many how they how they uh, are recruited for professional teams very much depends on their performance as college athletes. So for those college athletes who can't play um, for whatever reason, health reasons, uh, economic reasons, um, safety reasons, whatever, um, what does the future for those college, for, for those athletes look like?
0: Yeah, you're talking about those who can't go on and play professional sports. Exactly. Well, yeah. Or how how what will the recruitment
1: process even look like, right? If they can't play um, this this year, or if their team has been cut, like how are they how are they going to be eligible for for professional sports?
0: So I feel confident that professional football and baseball and and to most degrees basketball will be able to sort it out. But I do worry about how important the Olympic sports are to our Olympic pipeline because we've really, every four years, we love seeing Americans step on on the podiums and get gold medals and have the Star Spangled Banner sung and all that type of thing. Colleges create those opportunities. Colleges create the, the opportunity for those athletes to become Olympians. And if we're taking away those opportunities, there really isn't a safety net for those other Olympic structures. So are you saying to the athletes then you're on your own and that's a really tough decision at this point that I think colleges have to accept that they're, they're playing an important role in the development of some of our top athletes. Yes.
1: And our, our national morale, yeah. to your point. Um, Dr. Weaver, any final points um, before we end our time together?
0: I just think at this moment in time, we're paying attention to so many other things in higher education that are really important to us, enrollment, retention, graduation rates, and all the metrics. But we can't leave student athletes out of this conversation. And just because athletes are getting some experiences in teamwork and leadership and, and how, to, how to work well together, there's other skills they need to learn, they need to have access to. And I think as far as higher educators, we've got to be paying attention to that as well.
1: Well, Karen, thank you so much for those wise words and for guiding th- us through this quagmire <laughs> um, of, a, of a situation. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks, um, Karen. Thank you. And to all of our viewers, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you to Chanel Boatswain and Sarah Goldstein and the Center for Professional Learning team for supporting this event. Um, Thank you to all of you for tuning in. Um, we love hearing what you think. And we always want these webinars and these events to be better. So we have a very short feedback form that uh, is linked on this slide. We'll also send it to you in a follow up email and we would greatly appreciate hearing your thoughts, comments, suggestions. The Center for Professional Learning will be hosting uh, more Penn GSE live webinars on a variety of topics throughout this school year. Our next discussion will be with Dr. Leah Gillian, right on the heels of the election, uh, on the topic of political preferences and education outcomes. You can register for that webinar on the link provided on this slide. And you can check out other opportunities offered by the Center for Professional Learning at www.gsc.upenn.edu slash professional hyphen learning. We hope to see you there. Thank you all.